0: So we are in the second week of a series that we're doing throughout this fall, which we're calling Rebuilding Around Jesus, and the idea is to kind of uh, specifically um, kind, of, kind of speak to a moment that we find ourselves in, where a lot of people find themselves rethinking things that they may have received or inherited in the church that are, uh, you know, big parts of their lives, but they're kind of wondering, like, how does this make sense? Um, and the word that sometimes people use to describe that is deconstruction. And last week we kind of introduced this, and, and I made you know, the claim uh, that I, I think this is actually a healthy thing for Christians to do. And you can find lots of examples of it in the history, both of the church, but I think also uh, the people of Israel. And we talked a little bit about what that looks like. Um, and, and I'll be honest, like I, I'm kind of using some of my own experience of sort of rethinking things, um, kind of rebuilding around Jesus in my uh, own past experience when certain things that I felt like I had inherited or hadn't really questioned before didn't feel good enough. And so I had to go back to the drawing board and rebuild back around Jesus. And a lot of that is finding its way into this um, series. And um, last week we, we really kind of started with the, with the point that Jesus, how he was initially experienced by people, was not in the ways that we uh, experienced Jesus when we grow up in the church. As, as God, as as Messiah, as you know, in the gospel, the way it's often presented to us. He was uh, received as a prophet. Um, who was coming to, uh, in a sense, deconstruct uh, the mindsets of the people of Israel who he is coming to speak to. And so we talked a little bit about what it, that looks like, what it looked like to understand Jesus as a prophet, and then how that can continue to speak to us today as Jesus continues to deconstruct us when we really you know, seek him out and, and meet him, but rebuilds us back again um, in, in line with what God is doing through Jesus um, and his movement. Now, Jesus's prophetic uh, message, if you read the Gospels, uh, led to his death and then his resurrection. And so today what we want to do is we want to kind of tackle this thing that became a central part of Christian belief very quickly after it happened in Jesus's ministry. And so we'll be talking specifically about Jesus's death, but I do want to talk a little bit about how his resurrection sort of sets the stage for that today. Now, uh, Just a reminder, uh, we are going to be doing a question and response at the end of the sermon. Um, So if you have a question or something you'd like, you know, if I say something, you're like, you know, go into more depth on that, or what do you think about this? Um, You can go to our website uh, at um, uh, rescitychurch.org on your phone, and there should be a pop-up for you to enter some questions in. Now, Uh, We might not get to all of them today. Uh, Last week we had a, a bunch of questions. It's not quite enough time for us to delve into all of them. Um, And so if you ask a question, no guarantee that we'll get to it today, Um, but we want to make sure that we're trying to respond to all of them. So we actually put a video out this week that was on YouTube, and you can go back and watch that, and we'll do the same this week if we aren't able to get to all of the questions. Um, So, yeah, want to make sure that that's the case. And also, just to know, if, if you did ask a question last week, you watched the video, you didn't hear your question get asked, that means we're, pre- we're hoping to get to or planning to sort of get to that some at some point in the series. So we didn't want uh, to spoil anything for you guys. Um, okay, so anyway, talking about Jesus' death and resurrection today. Um, let's start with resurrection, okay? Obviously, the chronology is Jesus died and he rose again. But when we look at the resurrection, like that's the moment that the death started to have a significance or a meaning to it. And so I think it's good for us to maybe start there and look back upon the death of Jesus just to get a sense for, you know, why the the meaning that the resurrection gives the death is important for us. Because often we separate death and resurrection out, right? We hear gospel presentations and we hear about Jesus's death, but there's really nothing in there about his resurrection a lot of times. Whereas I think, um, uh, you know, when we really study what what we're going to see what Paul has to say here, the Apostle Paul, like, the two are very linked. And if you don't have the second part, the first part doesn't really matter. So it's important for us to sort of uh, see both of these things together. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 14 and 17, the Apostle Paul is writing to this Corinthian church. Some of them are not sure, you know, about what they think about the resurrection. And Paul is letting them know, like, you're you're, you're giving up some pretty important stuff here. So he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. So, very early on, we know that this letter was written around 20 or so years after the events of the Gospels. Um, so within the lifetimes of many of the people who are alive when Jesus is, is doing his thing, um, Paul is writing that the, the, this is very central. This is a, you know basically this is the one part of the Jenga pile that you can't pull out, or the whole thing falls apart. Because if, if you pull up the resurrection, none of the other stuff really makes sense. And he actually goes so far as to say, like, we should be really pitied. People should take pity on those weird, delusional Christians if Jesus never rose from the dead. It just doesn't make any sense. Nothing else really makes sense without that. Um, because a lot of people will, you know, have and will claim to speak from God, right? But Jesus is the only one who was raised again. Which seems like a sort of, you know sign or indicator that God wants us to pay attention to this guy, right? Because if God is theoretically the one who has the power to raise people from the dead, like, what other better way to show you, pay attention to what this guy was saying, than to raise him again to new life? Kind of in a sense, like, this is, you know, there are other prophets, other people who necessarily speak for me, but this is the guy you really need to make sure that you're listening to and understanding. Because his resurrection is at least a vindication of who he was as a prophet, and and, and what his message in that was, this is a sign that God is saying, I want you to to listen to this, okay? And, And going further, I think Paul's point is that Jesus's death only has meaning and power if Jesus was raised again from the dead. If he didn't, it doesn't, you know, there's really not a whole lot of, he's just another guy who came to claim to speak for God and then died, But if he was raised from the dead, boy, there's some real power and meaning to everything that he said up to that point, especially, and we'll talk about this a lot today, when we factor in the fact that Jesus, he's talked quite a bit about his own death, okay? So there's some significance to that that we have to pay attention to. And if he did rise again, his death matters, and we have the sort of, Like calling to take that really, really seriously, to not just kind of brush it under the rug or have it turn into white noise or take it for granted, which is what we can often do in the church. Instead, we should sort of continue to go back to that. Now, I realize that there might be questions that you could have around the resurrection, like how do we, you know, how do we, you know, this isn't just a point of faith, but we can actually think historically this made a lot of sense. And I thought about having a section in the sermon about this, and then I realized, like, we're, we're going to be getting into, you know, the late afternoon if we really into all that stuff. So if you have a question about that, go ahead and, and throw it in the Q&R, and I'll try to get to it um, today if, if we have time at the end. But what is the significance of Jesus' death, okay? If the resurrection happened, if we're, we understand it gives a sort of incredible significance and meaning to Jesus' death, what is that significance? And what is it specifically in how Jesus intended it to come across? Because we have a lot of language in the church to talk about Jesus' death, but I think it's important for us to understand how Jesus intended for his death, the the significance or meaning for his death to have. Okay, Now, any any sort of accounting for who Jesus was historically just has to take... um, account of the fact that he was killed at the end. So a lot of times when we talk about who Jesus was, a lot of times we can sort of, you know, talk about him as this sort of self-help guru, right? Someone going around teaching people to be nice, kind of, you know, like Mr. Rogers on tour through Judea, um, giving life lessons and inspiring people, right? That's kind of significance a lot of people give to Jesus. But if that's all he is, like you don't kill that guy, right? You just you're like, let's let's like kind of keep him doing his thing. I think kids are going to really grow up to be better people if they listen to this guy. He probably is not going to find himself executed as like a criminal. Okay? So when we actually put this frame together of who is Jesus, and again, we want to avoid putting up a picture of ourselves when we do this, right? We talked about this last week. Instead of replacing an image of Jesus that we've received that we think this is probably not totally right, we can't put a mirror up instead. We have to really focus on who is this guy, and if we're going to do that, we have to understand why he was killed, all right? And to do that, we have to understand the setting, the first century setting. Why, would, why not just does he, does he intend to die, but why would other people want him dead? So so let's talk about this a little bit. When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find, you know, when you really dig into it, it's not just theology sort of parading around as a narrative, right? You, You know you read that sometimes, like bad fiction, and you're like, this just seems like this is not very well written, it's really preachy, it's kind of over the top, Okay, and I think sometimes you might expect the Gospels to be like that when they talk about Jesus and his death. That's really not the case, actually. Especially if you know something about the first century, it's really, really, really believable when you sort of, you know, look at what it says about the Jewish leaders and uh, the Roman leaders who are kind of a part of this whole narrative as well. It maps on really, really cleanly to what we find about that area of the, of the world in that time and place in other settings. So, so let's talk a little bit about this. It, it kind of feels like a dense, I, to me at least, like a dense sort of political thriller. There's complex, uh, the characters make a lot of sense, like they're fleshed out motives when we really take it all in, in, in totality, and it's very coherent, okay? So let's, let's start here. We talk a lot of times about you know God's intent in Jesus dying, but Why would these other people want him to be dead? And this fits well with what we talked about last week, I think, where we talked about Jesus as prophet. Okay? So there are really two um, specific uh, actors that are kind of involved in Jesus' death, um, other than Jesus himself. Okay? The first are the Jewish leaders. Now, why would these Jewish leaders, um, priests and other elites, um, a part of different sects or groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you might have heard of these uh, different groups, the Sanhedrin, these kind of all refer to different elites, and they're, they're different, we don't need to get into it today, but they all kind of had a common mind of, like, we need to do something about this guy. And the Gospels, and then also a a document called the Babylonian Talmud, which is kind of a central part of Jewish belief, um, both kind of point to the fact that Jesus was uh, ultimately executed for two things, sorcery and then leading people astray. Okay, so... Sorcery would be his, his mighty deeds, these works that he accomplished. And if you're kind of wondering, like, you know, should we take seriously so that Jesus was like a miracle worker or doing sort of fantastic, powerful deeds, or at least was interpreted as doing those in the first century, this is a pretty good evidence for it, okay? Like, this is one of the main reasons, like, even from outside sources, that Jesus was killed. He seemed to have a power about him that threatened people, and so they figured, we need to get rid of this guy. And then also this idea of leading people astray, really kind of being like a false prophet in a sense. And if you actually go to Deuteronomy 13, there are sort of uh, guidelines given for how you should handle people who are coming, claiming to speak for God, really are speaking falsely about God though. And it says like, you have permission to get rid of these people if that's what's going on. And so the Jewish leaders thought, uh, this guy's got some serious influence, in our minds at least. He's not speaking for God. He's leading people astray, and so we need to deal with him. And actually, this has continued to just escalate because right before this, Jesus has shown up in Jerusalem, hailed as a Messiah, the people are celebrating, and the Jewish leaders are like, that's it, we have got to do something here. So that explains why the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus. But why, what about the Romans? Because the, at this time, Israel's not their own nation. They can't enforce their own laws. They don't have, you know, they kind of can, you know, try to get get stuff done in their own way, but they don't, they're not the ones in charge. They don't have the ability to execute people. So if they wanted to do it, they have to persuade the Romans. And so they go to this Pilate. He's kind of in charge of the area. And from what we can tell of Pilate, both in the Gospels, but especially outside of them, this guy didn't really care. He liked to kind of, Uh, he liked to actually like get the Jewish leaders upset. He liked to do the opposite of what they asked him to. And so when they come to him, he's like, I don't think this guy's in a problem. I'm going to leave him alive. And maybe you could even read it as like, the fact that he's driving you guys nuts makes me happy. So I'm happy to keep him alive. But the Jewish leaders come and they don't try to persuade him by saying, hey, you need to follow our Jewish laws. They say, people are treating this guy like a a rebel king. And what do you think Caesar's going to think if, he finds out that you've allowed this sort of, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary to be running around saying he's king of the world, or at least people think he is, I don't think Caesar's going to be too happy about that. And so Pilate kind of gets strong-armed into this sort of like, okay, fine, I think we probably got to take care of this guy. Now, it doesn't really seem like anyone involved actually thought this was Jesus' intent. To, to, to start a revolution, to overthrow uh, Roman power in the area and set up this political kingdom of God where he'd reign and anyone who was opposed to him would find themselves dead. It doesn't really seem like anybody thought that this was the case. But um, for Pilate, in his mind, it's not that big a deal to execute one random Jewish guy to save himself some trouble. It's happened all the time. So he figures, let's just do this. Let's execute this guy as if, he's a, uh, as if he's a revolutionary. He's claiming to be king. He's sort of setting himself up against Caesar. Let's go ahead and execute this guy, and it'll make all of our lives easier. And so that explains why Jesus ended up uh, dying on a cross, at least from one side of things. All right? And like I said, this is pretty well fleshed out when you read the Gospels. But as we read through the whole Gospels, we find out that there's a third Actor at play here who seemed to intend to want Jesus to die, and that's Jesus himself. And so we have to ask this question uh, why was Jesus killed according to his own intentions? Um, now, we often study this question. We, we believe this is true, but we kind of come at it a lot of times from what does Paul have to say? What do other parts of the Bible have to say? What is kind of the tradition of the church tell us. And we get this, you know, language that we have received to us a lot of times about why Jesus died. And we don't oftentimes just go to Jesus' own words and figure out why did he think he needed to die? What were his intentions in this? Um, it's not like he doesn't talk about it. He actually has quite a bit to say about it. And, and the first time that we really hear him start to talk about it, this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of, the, of those Gospels, um, where we find Jesus start to talk about his death. And this is a really important moment in the Gospels. It's kind of a watershed transition moment. And it's one you should remember because we will come back to this other points in this series because, again, it's such a foundational moment, turning point in these Gospels. So anyway, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and he decides to ask them, hey, you guys, like, you've got your ears to the ground. You check Twitter. Um, Who are people saying that I am? What's kind of like, you know, w- w- what are people sort of guessing at? They, they, they're aware of me, they seem excited uh, to have me around, but who do they think I am? Like, they're, you know, w- what do they think my role is? And, and they say, well, a lot of them think you might be Elijah, come back. A lot of them might th- think you might be John the Baptist, uh, or just some great prophet, right? And it's interesting, again, going back to last week, like, all of the guesses are prophets, right? Because this is where where Jesus' ministry really uh, fits. And so Jesus says, okay, okay, cool. What about you guys, though? You have a different lens into what's going on than everybody else. You've spent a lot of close time with me. You've heard me talk a little bit more in depth about what's going on here. What do you guys think is going on here? And Peter, who's always the first one to give his opinion, he says, I think you're the one chosen by God. I think you're uh, the son of David that we've been expecting, the, this king that we're waiting for. And Jesus goes, yeah, you got it. That's, that's right. You, you've hit the nail on the head here, Peter. Um, something big is going on here, much bigger than I think anyone really expects. But, he says, we can't talk about that yet. We've got to kind of keep that under wraps. The timing is not right for everyone else to get a sense for what's going on here. But at this moment, now that the disciples really know what's going on here, this is when Jesus starts to tell them how it's going to end for him. And that clues us into, you know, what the movement that God is up to has as a sort of central moment. The thing that kind of climaxes but also catalyzes what's going on is his death and resurrection. And he, so he says this, and this is from Mark 8, 31 to 32. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days again, rise again. Okay, so this is, this is the moment he starts to unpack things for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Messiah. This is the kind of Messiah I am, though. And he starts to clume in on it. Now, the interesting thing here is that the disciples don't seem to take this very seriously. Uh, they, they seem to kind of uh, be like, okay, cool. Yeah, Jesus says some weird stuff sometimes that we don't get, um, and so we're just going to keep moving on without that. And uh, we see this really clearly, especially um, when he actually does die, and the disciples, it's like he never told them this stuff. When you actually read the accounts, just, they, they think it's all over, right? So they don't take it seriously for some reason, um, but uh, they at least know. And Jesus starts to kind of give more riddles pointing in this direction as the Gospels proceed along. So he'll say things like uh, the, about the cup he must drink, Um, and this is an Old Testament image for for God's justice coming down, a cup that gets poured out. He talks about drinking a cup. Uh, He talks about being struck down like the shepherd in the book of Zechariah. He compares himself to a mother hen who gathers her her chicks under her wings in, in the midst of a barnyard fire, perhaps being burned up herself as everything around them is burning, but keeping the chicks safe. And he weaves it into sort of his virtues when he does talk about what the kingdom is supposed to look like. So there's, a, there's a, uh, just a couple chapters later in the book of Mark where the disciples are arguing about which of them should be greatest. And so one of them has, has the idea to go ask Jesus like, hey, can, when you kind of do this thing that now you've told us you're doing, can we be like the number one people in your kingdom? And actually, uh, I think Matthew's account is my favorite because it's their mom who comes and asks Jesus this. So it's like total like helicopter parent or snowplow parent, like, you know, just kind of coming through and making sure everything is good for their kids. Um, But Jesus kind of responds and says, okay, this kingdom has a kind of a a, a wonky value system, right? Things don't work the way you think it is. So if you're asking to be really great in this kingdom, right, and if you want to know what greatness looks like in this kingdom, well, you're going to have to serve others. And in fact, I'm going to embody this to the greatest degree possible. I'm going to, uh, to, to, to serve to the point that myself, even me myself, will give my life up for other people in the sort of ultimate kingdom act. And he says, he says this in, in, in verses 43 and 45, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be uh, first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that word ransom there is important. Um, It talks about a, a payment to avoid a certain consequence. And actually, if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, when it's translated into Greek, so that now the words that Jesus is, or what's being written down in the Gospels here, which is written in Greek, you can kind of compare it to the words that are used to describe words in Greek that are from the Old Testament, that word ransom shows up quite a bit. It's all over the Old Testament. And it's it's an idea within the law of Israel to, um, it's a provision, really, to redeem people or release them from debt or obligation, It's a way for them to avoid a certain consequence that comes upon them. And so Jesus is saying here, in line with this imagery, this well-established imagery that you all get, um, me giving my life will be a sort of ransom, a way to redeem people who are going to be under some consequence. And, and, And it will bring about a release for all of Israel. And so what's the consequence that he's talking about here? Now again, Jesus talks quite a bit about this. And He starts to ramp up his talk of consequence the closer and closer he gets to the end of the Gospels, which is when he gets uh, into Jerusalem for one last time. And, And a sort of sense of dread starts to build. And again, if you are familiar with your Old Testaments and you've read about other prophets, it's, it kind of feels similar to the way he's talking about what's about to happen. So, for example, in the book of Jeremiah, we talked about Jeremiah last week when we kind of laid out what, what a call for a prophet looks like. We use the word criticize and energize, right? And people don't like to be criticized, <laughs> And, 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 and Jeremiah is coming, and he's criticizing the people of Israel, saying that their agendas for how they are living are, are sort of in direct uh, contradiction to how God has called them to live according to the covenant. And God, and they're ignoring God's prophets who have been coming to try to you know, uh, tell them, hey, you guys have got to stop doing this. And instead, they're actually finding their own prophets who are saying stuff they want to hear and listening to them instead. And so a disaster is about to come upon Israel for this. And for Jeremiah, it is uh, the nation of Babylon coming in to uh, exile them and ultimately dest- destroy Jerusalem. And this is the disaster that he's saying is, is you are like the longer and longer you refuse to repent, the, the, the worse and worse this is going to get. The same thing is happening here with Jesus when he comes and he talks about the consequence for Israel. And we find, again, there's a lot of examples of this, but in Luke 19, uh, 41 uh, through 44, we get a really clear example of him talking about this. So as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So the consequences of Israel's rejection of God— again, similar to all these other prophetic sort of um, pictures from the Old Testament, where they're ignoring God, they're not listening to people that come to speak for him, they're refusing to repent and believe, like we talked about last week, to turn from these agendas, will result in their actual destruction, a literal disaster, okay? And, 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 if, and, a, and a few decades later, this actually happens, kind of showing again, Jesus is a prophet, Rome comes in and uh, wipes out the temple, as a sort of uh, revolution. This is kind of the agenda a lot of Jewish people are choosing in the time. Revolution against Rome is stirring, and it reaches a breaking point in AD 70. The Romans come in, they do what the Romans do, they smash it, they destroy the temple, and then it happens again in AD 130. So Jesus says, like the ways in which you guys have been moving as the people of Israel are going to lead to your disaster. And he's right. This is what actually takes place here. Their sort of rejection of their vocation to be a light and to follow God and to display his glory to the pagan nations, their refusal to do that would actually lead to their destruction now at the hands of these pagan nations. And God has come to try to warn them to turn from this and to call them to live according to his agenda. And like the prophets of old, they don't listen to him. And so God's going to give them over to this. Now, the night before Jesus' death, he has a, what we call the Last Supper. He has one last meal with his disciples where, again, he's, really, he's pretty candid and honest with them in a way that he hasn't been with other people up to this point. And we know he's mentally preparing uh, for what's about to happen at this point as well. So he has this special meal with his, with his people. And this isn't just like one last chance to hang out with his bros before he dies, okay? This is, um, he, he picks a very significant time for this, which is the, the time of Passover, all right? So Passover, if you understand it, is filled with meaning, okay? Meaning that we really, I think, probably struggled to understand unless we've grown up in a Jewish setting ourselves, all right? This is about uh, Egypt, right? The people trapped in Egypt and being liberated. It's also about judgment, though, too, right? If you remember, God brings his judgment upon the people of of Egypt, um, and, and, and the firstborn child is killed. And God says to keep Israel safe, we're going to have you sacrifice a lamb, put some blood above uh, your doorway, and the judgment will pass over you. Okay? So this judgment is kind of coming on everyone. But you can avoid the judgment if you trust in God and put this blood above your door. And, and, and so after this judgment comes, it's great freedom. The people are released now from Egypt, finally liberated from their oppression and set free to go into this promised land that God has set apart for them, to enter into this covenantal relationship with God that it gets ratified. Now, for Jesus, okay, the, the, the significances and the sort of combining of the meanings of what he's doing in his ministry and what's going on in the Passover are incredibly important for us to sort of, to sort of uh, grab a hold of and understand Because Jesus is saying, the lamb to be slain now for the protection from God's justice that will lead to a new exodus is me. So what's about to take place tomorrow is going to be this sort of Passover exodus moment for us as we are protected from God's judgment and we uh, move off into this being set free now. And so he institutes this new kind of Passover meal that he, want, he says, continue to do this in remembrance of what happens here, around me in this moment. And, and this is what we celebrate every single Sunday here at Red City and, and in churches for centuries the, this practice of communion or the Eucharist. Jesus says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given them thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this sort of symbol-laden meal is supposed to continue on in remembrance of this sort of Exodus moment, this Passover moment for everyone who follows Jesus now, all right? And this is something we continue to do in the church uh, even to this day here. And the implication is that this death will have a sort of enduring impact and significance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness in his ministry as well. And this would be what keeps those who accepted it safe from the disaster that was about to come. Jesus would cleanse and protect Israel from judgment, just like this Passover lamb. Now again, okay, so let's, kinda, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about this here, Okay. Um, let's leave our church luggage at the door. Let's just talk a little bit about what Jesus is saying here and build off of him. But I, I think you start to see a foundation for which the church's beliefs on this are, are developing, Right? Um, and specifically, Jesus is coming like a prophet to Israel, right? To God's special people, to cleanse them of their failure, uh, to avert disaster for those with ears to hear it, to free her from the dark power of sin. We'll, t- we'll do a whole sermon on that, okay? So don't worry, we're not like jumping over it, but to free them from that dark power and to give them a new sort of enduring word and legacy to live in and follow. And in doing so, making an even greater exodus, But the story doesn't end there, okay? So if we move ahead in Matthew's gospel, just a couple of chapters to to, uh, chapter 28, we find this. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So from very early on, right after Jesus has been raised again, This invitation of exodus and rescue and promise of freedom is open to outsiders from Israel now too. Jesus is saying, because this has taken place, I want you to invite everybody in to to partake in this Passover, this exodus, this uh, averting of disaster. And because Jesus had rose, he was king, and he is telling you to go to every nation and do this. Don't stop and don't keep this within the borders of Israel. Go everywhere and bring it out. And Julie's actually going to do a whole sermon on this Great Commission, okay? So again, we'll, we'll get into this more. There's a lot of significance to what Jesus is saying here, but I also I want to, know, to tie this to his death. Now, to bring it back to where we started the sermon today in 1 Corinthians 15, some Gentile Corinthians, again, living about 20 years or so after this takes place, they're hearing this, basically the same thing from Paul uh, when he talks about what is at the very center of what it means to be a Christian, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is uh, another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Um, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Okay, I read the, the full thing. I know it's on the slide there. All right, this is what, for Paul, like this is at the center of, this is the f- most important thing, okay? It's the whole reason we're here in the first place. Christ died for our sins, just like Jesus says in the Passover meal, according to the scriptures. And this means it's in, it's in the line of God's story, right? It's a part of the story that God has been telling through his people uh, as he has this relationship with them and with the whole world that has started all the way going back to Adam himself and Abraham and Moses and all of these other people who are in it, okay? It's to avert disaster that comes from sin, to cleanse us, and then we know that this mattered because he, raised again, he was raised again, and he, he actually showed up to a bunch of us. And Paul actually lists a bunch of the people in this passage that Jesus showed up to. He says, like, 500 people saw this guy. All right? This is really matters. And you can go talk to them if you're really wondering. So this is essentially exactly what Jesus has said in the Gospels. And really, at its heart, when we think about it, it's a pretty basic sort of creed to confess, And so as we wrap up the sermon today, I want to leave you with this, okay? And this is how I want to tie this back to this idea of like sort of asking hard questions where a lot of us might be in this place, right? Jesus, when he talks about what's going on in his death and resurrection, he's not necessarily giving us some abstract atonement theology, right? He's not giving us this sort of like, sort of long, like, equation, essentially, that we have to memorize with subsections and footnotes and big words that we don't understand necessarily. His message is not a Bible tract, right? It's it's less about knowing it, for sure, and everything that goes on, and it's more about just following. And so what he's saying is, uh, something is happening, and I need you to repent, I need you to believe, I need you to follow. And he gives them a meal, a challenge, a rescue, and an invitation. Okay, this is what he's actually giving to us in this time. An invitation to take up our own crosses, to love God and others, and to follow him into a new life of turning, being made whole and clean. Turning from our own agendas, repenting and believing, just like we talked about last week, and and being cleansed by Jesus himself. And so, as these other writers, people like Paul and other people in the New Testament, they, they write more about what's going on with Jesus' death and resurrection, as they sort of flesh out the significance of it. And as the church has continued to do this now, through the work of the Spirit, making sense of what had, what, you know, what's all going on here, what is specifically in play here, Like, this is important work, okay? So so I don't want you to hear me saying, like, theologians, people who think through the, the enduring significance of what's going on in Jesus' death and resurrection, it doesn't matter. I think we actually need it. It's important for us to continue to understand in more depth what's going on here, okay? But accepting Jesus without having it all figured out, without knowing every single point, like being able to articulate every subsection and footnote of all this, that's okay? Okay? Sometimes, if if I I even say, like, we need to just go on that, okay, and and, and to be willing to figure it out on the way. Uh, What Paul says, echoing Jesus, this basic thing that he says is of first important, like, that's all we really need to move forward, I think, Okay? Uh, I found this to be true. Again, as I, using my own experience a bit as I put this into this series, like, I found this to be true too. I felt like this was a firm enough foundation to where I can have questions about some of these other things and feel really confident in continuing to move forward and just figuring it out as I go, making sense of it uh, as I pray through it, as I read scripture, as I read other people who've worked through this and, and sort of like, you know, it starts to cement. It starts to make more sense, but you don't need to have it uh, cemented in order to move forward. And, and, and so I think a lot of times, right, uh, we can sort of not have it all figured out or, or have received or inherited something from a church tradition we grew up in, and we think, well, this doesn't make total sense to me, or this, feel, this feels wrong in some way, and we, th- we think, well, I can't move forward until I have it all figured out again, right? The, the things, you know, this, isn't, this isn't clear-cut for me. Um, you know, and we can use things like I'm deconstructing or I have questions, I'm, I'm in process as a way to kind of get off the hook sometimes for discipleship, to really just following Jesus. And I just want to say to you, like, you don't need to have it all figured out to follow Jesus, okay? It, you don't need to have it all figured out to go to church, to seek Jesus out, to be willing to repent, uh, to be willing to follow Jesus in, in loving others and loving God, um, to take his meal to be challenged by him, uh, uh, to, to respond to his summons, to understand that you're rescued, even if you're not entirely sure what that looks like for sure to you, um, and, and then follow him and going to the nations and pro- just proclaiming that this happened and that's significant, it matters. And I'm gonna spend the rest of my life figuring that out. Okay, that's ultimately what we're offered by Jesus. And so as we sort of set that in place, I just want to invite you and encourage you. If you are in a place where you're deconstructing, you're you're asking hard questions, continue to do that. I think it's good for us to go back to what is essential, what is of first importance. But don't let that be a barrier to you to following Jesus, to engaging fully in what he invites us to, because you can and you will figure that out as you get into it and start to understand what it means to live this out, to respond to it as if it's something that's actually happened. So I'm going to pray, and uh, and then we will uh, go into our time of question and response here. Lord, thank you that um, we don't have to to have it all figured out. We don't have to know everything, that we can follow you. We can understand that you went to the cross, you died, you were raised again, and that's really all we need to know in order to move forward and follow you. And that you help us to figure it out as we go. You allow us to sort of be in process, to deconstruct things, to challenge our own beliefs or what we've received or inherited while still knowing that we're safe in following you. Knowing that we are, uh, we are, we are continuing to follow you in that even as we sort of figure it out on the way. As we're sort of carried along almost by your Spirit as we follow with childlike faith not understanding everything, but still being sold out and believing and following you regardless. Help us to do that, Lord, in the midst of our questions. Be tender with us. Give us comfort. Um, and I pray that you would um, deliver us into your new exodus, God. Um, in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for us. Amen. Okay, so we will take a little bit of time for some question and response. Again, just to be clear, it's not called question and answer because I'm not saying I have all the answers or anything. I'll do my best to give a response to it, okay, Uh, and maybe point you in the direction of someone else who might be helpful to you as well. But do we have any questions, Julie?
1: Yes. Yes, we do have many. Okay. I don't know. Oh, there we go. There we go. Uh, So we probably won't get to all the questions today, but we can make a video again to go through some of the other ones later in the week. Uh, But the first question that I have for you is, what does repent mean?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And we talked a little bit about this last week. So um, I tried to flesh out what this looked like in more detail. Because Jesus goes around and talks about repent and believe. It's actually the very beginning of his ministry. The very first thing he says is he kind of sets out, Mark 1 15, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near, you know, believe the good news essentially is what he said. And um, we have a lot of churchy language around this word, repent, uh, a lot of times. And in Jesus's own time, it meant, and we actually have examples, I talked about this in the sermon, uh, examples of other people using the the, uh, phraseology of repent and believe in like a not a religious setting, uh, which is really interesting. And so basically what he's saying is turn from your agenda turn from sort of your way of maybe, maybe following God and, and follow mine instead, okay? It's about turning from one path and following another. And the rest of Jesus's ministry is about sort of laying out what the path looks like, okay? So repent and believe always have to go together. But believe means sort of following Jesus, trusting in him, uh, understanding that the way that he gives us and what he does to sort of uh, give it power is, is all we actually need from God, yeah.
1: All right. So, this next question uh, the person is asking for you to make the topic of death and resurrection practical. Mm-hmm. So, beyond just the idea of having faith, how is this practical? Why should I give my life to this?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the way the church, uh, you maybe have heard about this a lot, is believe, right? And that definitely matters, okay? Believing in what Christ has done for us and believing that that is all we need, is really important. If you don't have belief in something, you can't really move forward. Okay, but, um, and, and the, the word faith is a, is, a, is a tricky one to translate. Um, in the Greek, Were the Greek of the word, uh, the word is pistis. It both means believe. Like, I believe that... Um, It's gonna be hot today because, like, that's what my weather app told me. Right? Believing something because you have like a reason to. Okay, that's one aspect of it. But then the other aspect of it is like faithfulness, sort of like following, sort of being accountable. Um, sort of uh, uh, having allegiance to, like so different ways that you can sort of unpack that word pistis. And so sometimes theologians are sort of like, how do we understand for sure, you know, the, the, the best way to unpack what Paul is saying, for example. Paul uses this language of, of um, faith often when he talks. And, uh, and so I do think though we have to have a sort of robust understanding of what faith means. And so faith means like trusting and believing in Jesus, But it means more than that, I think, too. And so one way in which Jesus' death and resurrection, I think, is really practical to us is let's just go back to what Jesus said to his disciples when they're asking, like, hey, can we be really great in the kingdom? And Jesus is like, this is how the kingdom works. Like, death is at the center of it, death and resurrection, giving yourself over. And he says things to the uh, uh, disciples like, take up your cross and follow me. Be willing to, to, to go to death yourself, okay? Not necessarily a literal death always, um, but like be willing to give yourself over to this thing, okay? Because that's what it means to be great, is to follow Jesus. Sort of the foundational uh, ethic of the kingdom of God, and, and we unpacked this in our Philippians uh, sermon series this summer a little bit too, is um, following Jesus and being willing to die to self, to die to our own agendas, and follow Jesus instead, believing that God works through that, just like he raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, so I think it's a very practical way, um, is, is being willing to die to ourselves, um, and then um, believing and sort of living in the newness of life that comes as we die to ourselves and follow Jesus through the Holy Spirit.
1: And then the second part of that question was, why should I give my life to this?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So... um I think, um, I mean, there's a lot of ways I can answer that, and it'd be you know, uh, good to you know, to talk talk one on one about this a little bit more maybe. But um, for I'll just say for me, okay, I'll just say for me. What? Why do I think it's worth giving myself over to this to follow it? Um, because when we look at the world around us, like the messages we get, oftentimes are. Um, you just kind of do whatever feels good, right? That's the best way you can live your life. Do whatever feels good, and, you know, it should all be figured out. And I think a lot of us realize how shallow that can be a lot of times, right? How, it's not really rooted to anything. It just sort of, like, leaves us listless and, like, you know, one day this thing might feel good, and the next day it might feel terrible, so we go do something else that's good. I think it's important for us to be rooted into something that is deeper, than just our own experience, right, of whatever feels good one day and then doesn't feel good the next day. It's, it's better for us to be rooted into something far deeper than that. And the Christian tradition of people following Jesus, of repenting and believing, of dying to themselves and believing that God is working in the world, uh, is, is something that is m- much, you know, there's a lot more weight to it than just what we've experienced in our short times on, in, uh, uh, on earth, and if again, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, like that has significance that no one should like, bat their eyes at, right? It really mattered. If Jesus was raised from the dead, like nothing else could be more important than this, right? Because isn't that the one thing that we're all trying to avoid or manage is death? If someone was raised from the dead, doesn't that, doesn't that have significance that, that connects to us at the most important part of who we are? right is knowing we live a finite life knowing we will die someday being affected by other people's deaths right we live in a we're living in through this pandemic right now and yes it could be worse but people are dying from it and especially early on we were confronted with our own mortality right i think a lot it's a very a lot of us are very young watching this right now and i think a lot of us for the first time in our lives really had to grapple with the fact that we will die someday and we can die even right now right like we're not going to live forever we're not all guaranteed to live into our 90s, right? Death is something that is, is, is always a possibility for any single one of us. It's kind of the great equalizer. If someone was raised from the dead and he says, like, what I'm talking about, like, is sort of goes right to the heart of this idea of death and life, I think we should take it seriously, okay? And so if he was raised from the dead and he did intend to die, and this is all true, what we're talking about here, I don't know how you couldn't want to commit yourself to it, I guess. That's one way I could put that.
1: We have more questions, but um, we will get to them in future messages mm-hmm. or later this week.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the questions. They're super helpful, super fun, and I love that you guys are engaging with this. So... Um